Welcome to the Coaching Through Chaos podcast, helping you conquer the chaos in your life. Your host is licensed marriage and family therapist, Dr. Colleen Mullen. Dr. Colleen has been doing what she does for almost two decades. She's a private practice owner, a chaostician, a magazine columnist, a best-selling author, and her work or writing has been featured on countless websites including Fortune, Martha Stewart Weddings, Psych Central, The New York Post, Success, and many more. Listen in as she brings you experts in the psychology of life. They may be New York Times bestsellers, key players in their profession, or people who have overcome tremendous obstacles in life and are here to share their story to help you live your best life. Let's get to it. Stay tuned for our next chaos-crushing guest. Here is your host, Dr. Colleen Mullen. So I was at this party a few months ago, and I met a guy, a fellow therapist, who I spent some time with talking about some social policy issues. Then, after I left the party, I did like so many of us do these days, I friended him on Facebook because I wanted to keep in touch with my new socially-minded buddy. He friended me back, and then I took a look at his page, which had a lot of LGBT and trans-friendly information on it. One of the posts had a link to his webpage, so I clicked on it. And that's when I found out that my new friend was not only an advocate for LGBT and trans persons, but he was, in fact, a trans male. He medically did his transition from female to male 11 years ago and is now a highly regarded figure in the trans community. My new friend is Xander Kegg, and I wanted to interview him because of my own social blindness. Had I ever been asked if I knew a trans person, I would have said no because I don't think that I had because I, like so many others, have been under the impression that somehow I would just know if a person was trans. You know, you think you would see something that would just be a telltale sign or something. Well, after meeting Xander, I understand not only why I didn't know, but also recognize that it's really none of my business. You know, Xander is very masculine. He's bald with a full beard, a male voice, body shape. Had we not connected on social media and started communicating, I would never have thought that he was anything other than a natural-born male. In pop culture today, I think many of us are getting our first doses of the trans community from the I Am Kate reality show in which Caitlyn Jenner is joined by several trans women to help her better acclimate and understand her new community, both the negatives and the positives of it. I think the show is great for educating us, the uneducated, about the varied stories and hardships that transitioning in our society can bring on. As a therapist, I believe the word courageous is tossed around a bit much in our popular culture today. But in this case, deciding that you are going to live as you want, go through medical alterations of your body, and massively disrupt your existence as you know it is quite courageous. Now, whether we like it or not, we still live in a very judgmental and fear-based world. And when others don't conform to what we think are the social norms, it can result in social isolation, abuse, and hate crimes. I am sad and concerned for our society that this truth still exists. I'm not here to solve that problem, and neither is Xander, although I think both of us would wish that we could solve that and change how everybody thinks. But I've brought Xander on the show to talk about his unique experience and how not everything that we think we know about how a person decides to transition is how it's portrayed in popular culture, and also about the fact that not everyone's story is tragic. Xander's life is one with an overarching theme of transition, which we begin our interview with. Make sure you stay tuned to the end of the interview. In addition to all that we cover, Xander also tells us about how his life changed culturally, or at least how he was perceived culturally, when he went from a first-generation Latina lesbian to a highly educated, quote-unquote, white male. You know, his post-transition life came with prejudices that he did not anticipate. Now, before I go further, I want to take a second to say hello to you and thank you for joining me today on the Coaching Through Chaos podcast. I am your host, Dr. Colleen Mullen, and I'm so happy to have you with me today. Okay, I need to properly introduce my guest and new friend so that you really get an idea that he lives and breathes his life authentically and with purpose. Since 1987, Xander has conducted over 400 public presentations on issues related to diversity, nonviolence, cultural humility, trauma-informed care, and conflict resolution. 
Xander is currently employed as a licensed clinical social worker with the U.S. government and is a designated National Association of Social Workers and U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs Office of Diversity and Inclusion Diversity Subject Matter Expert. Xander holds a bachelor's degree in speech and a master's degree in conflict analysis and resolution, another master's degree in theology, and yet another master's degree in clinical social work. He was recognized in 2011 as Alumni of the Year for Work Ethic and in 2016 as a distinguished alumni by his alma mater, Metropolitan State University of Denver. Xander is the co-editor of Letters from My Brothers, Transitional Wisdom and Retrospect, and Manning Up, Transsexual Men on Finding Brotherhood, Family, and Themselves. He is also the co-author of the article, Transgender Veterans Are Inadequately Understood by Healthcare Professionals, featured in the Military Medicine Journal of May 2014, and he is the feature of the 2014 award-winning illustrated documentary, Xandrology. Now, there is at least one episode of Xandrology released on Amazon right now, and after listening to this interview, I really suggest that you go and check it out. I had the opportunity to watch the unreleased version of the full film, and it's really something special, and I would encourage you to take a look at the episodes that are released. Xander lives in San Diego with his wife, and they will be celebrating their 14th anniversary in September of 2016. And here I present to you my interview with Xander Kegg. I'm here with Xander Kegg on the Coaching Through Chaos podcast. Thank you, Xander, for being with me on the show today. Hi, Colleen. Thank you for having me. So, Xander, you're here to talk about a significant part of your life history that has to do with you being a trans man. However, when I met you and started learning about your life, I realized that you had a life that I think is full of transitions along the way, starting with when you were born. Now, you had a life that you started out fighting right from the get-go, from the day you were born. Can you tell us a little bit about your early life history? Sure. Well, I should preface by saying that this is the story that I was told by my mother. And my father has said that it's a little off, but he hasn't told me in what ways it's off, really. So I'll just go on with the story that my mother told me. She said that while she was pregnant with me, she had some complications. And around the seventh month of her pregnancy, uh, she was told that I was dead, that I didn't have a heartbeat. So they were going to have to open her up, sort of cesarean section-like, and then take me out. Well, they did that. They opened her up and they took me out. And thankfully, either somebody felt it or they tested for a heartbeat and it was faint. So they put me in an incubator. So they thought I was dead. They were taking me out to dispose of me. Oh, my goodness. And yeah, I mean, you're here now all these years later. So tell us how you survived that. So I was born in the seventh month rather than so I was two months premature. Mm -hmm. I was just barely over three pounds. So I was quite little. I was kept in an incubator. I'm not exactly sure for how long those details are, are long gone. But the time from when I got out of the incubator and got home, my mother tells the story that it's about six months after I got home that I was still having a lot of difficulties with things like holding down food. So she would have to feed me every hour or so to keep me nourished because I just wasn't holding anything down. So the first several months of my life were pretty um, difficult. Wow. And it certainly sounds it. Did you have any delays then when you were growing up? And I know something else happened when you were six, but, you know, sometimes preemie babies that needed such care have some delays and, and things like that. Was there anything like that going on for you as a young child? Not that I've ever been told. So you're very fortunate. Yeah. But like you alluded to with the other thing that happened when I was six, encephalitis. So, you know, inflammation of the brain tissue is no joking matter. I mean, it definitely contributed to some learning disabilities um, as a result, some physical um, disabilities as well. But from that birth to age six, as far as I know, there weren't any developmental delays. However, there are two things. One, my lungs and my gastrointestinal system were fully developed but not ready to be exposed to the world at seven months. 
I've had problems in those two areas my whole life. Oh. So, so there are those issues. But with the encephalitis, the learning disabilities, I had paralysis on the left side of my body for several months. I was in the hospital for about a month or two. I was in a coma. So there were some significant issues that came up as a result of the encephalitis at age six. Right. And you obviously, again, have overcome those, you know, so your life is full of like transitions through these medical issues and surviving. In so many ways, I think it's adaptability. I think I have very good adaptability skills because I still have issues physically that I haven't necessarily overcome. I've just learned to adapt. Learning disabilities, right? So I I was basically a middle school dropout. I only went to high school because I was institutionalized during my high school years and was forced to go to school, but then dropped out as soon as I was back home. But now I have college degree and some additional education, but with some pretty significant learning disabilities, but I learned to manage and adapt. So I, it's, it's, it's not really a sense of overcoming. It's more a sense of adapting, adapting. being yeah. really adept at adapting. That's a good, good play on words. You know, you just started talking about or mentioned your education. And one of the things that I just was blown away with was how many degrees you have. You, you're a very degreed person. Can you talk about your educational path and why you pursued different degrees and how they've influenced you now? Sure. So like I mentioned, I dropped out of school. Let's just go with high school. High school dropout. That That's just a nice, you know. Sounds much better than yeah. middle school. <laughs> yeah, I know. Give me some credit. The idea of going to college struck me when I was almost 30 years old. At that point in time, it was a little over a decade that I was in the working world. And like a lot of people in their late 20s, I was kind of sick of the whole thing. You know, I just didn't want to work anymore. So I thought, oh, maybe I'll go to college. I mean, how hard could it be? Right. So I applied to a single university in Colorado and I was accepted. And so I started going to school there. It wasn't the right fit for me. So I did change schools, but I completed my undergraduate degree in three years and was very active in school, you know, like student government and student organizations and political stuff on campus. So it was a really good experience for me. I was excelling in school versus when I was younger, I didn't excel. Yeah. So really affirming for you to go back and adopt that that role as a student at that age. Absolutely. You know, the funny thing is, when I was in my elementary and middle school years, I would get in trouble a lot for talking too much. And my bachelor's is in speech. <laughs> so I got a degree in talking too much. That's what I like to say to people. But it was while I was in college that my academic advisor encouraged me to go to graduate school. My first comment to that was, what's graduate school? I didn't even know what it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nobody in my family had, my parents didn't even graduate high school in the traditional sense. So graduate school is not anything I was exposed to. And so once she told me what it was, I was like, oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. And I found that you could get a graduate degree in college student personnel administration or student affairs. And I thought, well, that's great. I love being a college student. I like being on a college campus. If I can get a job working on a college campus with college students, that sounds like a perfect gig for me. So I applied to one school out in Florida, and um, I got accepted, and I drove out there and went to school and got a Master's of Science in Student Affairs. That's something. I I don't think I've ever heard of that degree. (laughs) It's a great degree. The sign on the campus said something like, love college, why leave? Get a degree in Student Affairs. That's fantastic. But now, but you've since gone on and have some other degrees that you're actually using today. Yes. I do want to say, you know, people have commented, you know, oh, you have so many degrees. You're so um, academic or learned. And I say, no, I just didn't want to work. Well, I hear you. I have a similar experience. I went back to college at 28 and used going to graduate school as a way to get to California. I mean, I get it. And I did all the student stuff. So my story in that sense, I, I connect with you on what you were just saying. I totally enjoyed being a graduate student from 30 to 32, and then after that worked again. <laughs> right? It's a good life if you can right. get it. Um, so when I was nearing the end of the graduate program, I applied for their doctoral program, mm. and I got accepted into the doctoral program. And then I remembered that years prior, I had had an experience of thinking that I might want to be a minister. 
I had been very involved in a local church, and I saw it as kind of being a motivational speaker, more so than a preacher. And I thought, I can always come back to the doctoral degree. I think I'm going to try to get into seminary. So I applied to one seminary, because again, how hard can it be? (laughs) And I got accepted. It was out here in California, so I came back to California and went to seminary and got a master's in theological studies. And it wasn't just my experience of being in church that led me to seminary. One of the other things that led me to seminary was growing up in a Catholic family and not hearing from my family members, but from the the larger Catholic community about the sinfulness of homosexuality and how being gay was wrong in the eyes of God and scripture could be pulled out and, and tossed around and used as a baton Right. When we're talking about homosexuality, that's because at the time you were still living as a woman. You were born as a woman and living as a lesbian. Yeah. So you're this Mexican-American Catholic lesbian. So (laughs) (laughs) I just had to get that straight for myself. So you grew up with all the, the sins of what homosexuality was. Yeah. Now, I didn't internalize it. That's one of the many gifts that I've I don't know, maybe as innate, is that I don't internalize a lot. So I didn't take on all of that sense of it being wrong. But what I did take on was the injustice of it all. Mm -hmm. And through my experience with people at, say, like gay pride parades who are out there protesting. Mm -hmm. So I experienced, you know, that kind of um, interaction multiple times over a course of time many years. And I thought, I want to know what prompts that. What's behind that? Where are they learning that, one, there's something wrong, there's something sinful? And and how is it that they're being taught? Because they don't seem to be very kind about their disapproval. They can be pretty angry and violent. And, you know, I've been spit on a couple of times. Um, So, you know what I mean? Like really demonstrative ugliness. And so... I thought going to seminary would give me the skill set to understand what people are referring to when they're tossing around scripture from mostly the Greek scriptures from the Christian tradition um, and some Hebrew scriptures from the Jewish tradition about what's right and what's wrong. I wanted to know more about that so then I could have a conversation with people. And initially, I think I went into it thinking I could beat them at their own game. And that wasn't the right motivation I've since decided not to take that frame of reference, but that was the initial, you know, starting place. So I did that. I went to seminary, got that degree, and uh, yeah, and then I went on again, but it was there was a few-year break between the seminary degree, and then I went and got a master's in social work, so now I'm a licensed clinical social worker. Yeah, so lots of education, lots of degrees, put off working for a while, if we look at it that way. And I think the seminary degree shows how passionate you must be about figuring things out, right? I mean, because you're living this life that we're going to move into the transitional part now, but living this life where there's oppression, there's prejudice, and trying to figure out where that might come from in the religious sense or spiritual sense at the time based on how you were raised and that you dedicated yourself and got an entire degree in that. So a lot of self-reflective research on your own community and how you were raised. Absolutely. I think that the start of my social work career actually started while I was in seminary because since I had that frame of reference of wanting to like win and beat them at their game that transformed into wanting to be of service to my own community, that's when I started interacting with people who had faced even more oppression and discrimination than I had around religion and sexual orientation. And so I made it my mission to be able to encourage people to look for alternatives. The message tends to be from Christian community in general that if you're gay, you're not welcome here, Mm -hmm. right? But there's also a message that sometimes comes from gay community or LGBT community, which is if you're a person of faith, you're not welcome here. So here I was part of this larger LGBT community, but I'm not a person of faith, but I I have a lot of respect 
and admiration for philosophical and religious traditions. And so what I wanted to do is help people to reconcile their sexual orientation with their religion so that they could continue being a person of faith. So if they wanted to continue being a Catholic, there were alternatives. If the Roman Catholic Church down the street didn't welcome them, maybe another Catholic tradition would, the American Catholic Church, or a Dignity Church, which is like a gay Roman Catholic tradition church. So I just knew that those things existed, and I wanted people to be exposed to that. You can still be, you know, an evangelical Christian and be gay and go to this church down the street or be a Mormon or be from Assemblies of God or Pentecostal right. or Lutheran. Right, now feel like you have to have shame about some part of you, whether it's the spiritual side or the, or the sexual side. Absolutely not. But I myself am a non-theist, mm-hmm. but it's a social work kind of It's going to say, mission. thank goodness you found social work because you were, of anything, you were a natural-born social worker, it sounds like. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I do want to talk about some of your transition and... You know, pre-transition, we just mentioned you're living as a first-generation Mexican Catholic lesbian, and you're very much in that community. Can you talk about how you came to decide to transition to a man? Well, it's gradual. Mm -hmm. When I was a child, my mother was involved in a lot of different theater communities, and through her interactions, I met transsexual women, and I met cross-dressers, so men who dressed as women, and I also met drag queens and female impersonators from the time I was quite young, maybe like 10, 11 years old. But I had not, as far as I know, ever been exposed to or encountered somebody who was assigned female at birth, who was either impersonating a man or doing drag king shows or a transsexual man, like that isn't something that I ever remember hearing about or seeing. It's possible that I did, but I I didn't know about it. And it wasn't until I was, I believe, 28 or 29 years old when I saw a documentary at a gay and lesbian film festival in San Diego called You Don't Know Dick. And it's actually one of the first feature-length documentaries on trans men. It's from the mid-90s. And At the time I was watching it, it struck me as something that was quite interesting, but it did not strike me as something that was pertinent to my life. I didn't walk out of that movie theater going, oh my gosh, I'm a trans man. I didn't synthesize the information. It it was so outside of me. It, It seemed quite outrageous, really. Like, they did what? When? Why? How? It, it was too big for me to sort of wrap my mind around at that point. Right. And I think one of the significant things, and you, you just mentioned that, was that it wasn't that you thought or you were looking for something that was going to fit you. This wasn't the awakening of, oh, that's it, I should be a man or I am a man. And I think that's different. You and I talked before the interview that when I started learning about your experience, that you didn't have what myself, maybe in mainstream thinking, has grown up with hearing that if someone is trans, they believe that they were born in the wrong body. They kind of knew it from the time that they were young, and they've always lived thinking, I'm in the wrong body, and I need to fix that. I need to correct that. Can you talk about how, I mean, your experience is unique. I know that you're very outspoken about everybody's experience is unique. So can you talk about that? It wasn't that you thought you were in the wrong body. Absolutely. I mean, that is a dominant narrative, especially for clinicians. That's a narrative that we're going to hear from a significant portion of our clientele if they're trans and coming specifically to get letters for things, hormones, surgeries. Because of my experience in my body at a young age, you know, struggling physically from the time I was born, Mm -hmm. right? And then after the encephalitis with the paralysis and some of the other issues that came with that, I hit a point in my life when I was probably around 10 or 11 where I became very fully in my body. I became very athletic. And so I was running and I was skateboarding and I was cycling and I was skating. I loved being outdoors and I loved being physical. I never once thought that there was something wrong with my body. And then in my teen years and in my 20s, I was then part of lesbian community. I I had come out as lesbian when I was 14. And so I was fairly young and Mm -hmm. 
in that community. And by the time I was 16, I was already part of a fairly large network of lesbians. And I was going out. I had a fake ID, so I was clubbing it, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and going to social events. And so I was exposed to a lot of different ideas. And, and some of those ideas had to do with be proud of who you are, be proud and strong in your body, mm-hmm. right? That there was some strength in that. So... There was no reason for me to not take that on and to live into that because up to that point, I hadn't really considered myself a victim of any sort of trauma that impacted how I saw or lived in my body. I had been, but I didn't internalize it. So I didn't take it out on or blame it on or have it be manifested in my body. So this idea of being born in the wrong body did not and does not match for me. It was more a sense of watching that documentary and seeing what the men in that movie were reporting, which is that their lives had improved significantly. Just everything about their life, their sense of walking in the world and feeling more confident, their ability to feel not comfortable in their body. That's probably the way they talked about it. But for me, it was more a sense of I presented as a very, very masculine woman, but not I mean, this is an insider term, but maybe other people will recognize, you know, I I wasn't a diesel dyke. Uh You know, I wasn't the big keychain hanging off my jeans, boots kind of lesbian, but I was boyish. I was very boyish. And I would a lot of times be surred when I was out in public. That was a fairly common thing for me. So people thought I was a guy even before I transitioned. And it was in that experience and seeing that movie that there was a part of me that was like, huh, that's interesting. But again, it didn't trigger anything internal. I had never thought that there was anything wrong with my body, nor did I think there was something wrong with how I identified my gender. I had come to fully accept that I was a dyke, which to me is not the same as lesbian. It was a really different identity from the women who identified as lesbian or gay women. There was this real sort of in-your-face, F-U kind of politicalness about being a dyke. And anti-men as well, from what I understand of your stance at the time. Yeah, I'm not, you know, I remember when I was about 16 and I was first encountering some lesbian separatism. I remember challenging it and saying to these older women, they were probably in their early 20s, saying things to them like, well, you know, all the men in my family are really cool. All the problems I've ever had were from women. So whether it be abuse or neglect or abandonment, it was all at the hands of women, not men. But they sort of cut to, well, but it's the patriarchy. And so it's not about your individual experience. It's about society at large and the sexism. And they weren't using words like misogyny in the community that I was around, but they were talking about sexism and the patriarchy. And I don't know, I guess over the course of a few years, I just drank the Kool-Aid and um, went along with it. But it never really sat. I, I never felt comfortable about it. There was always something about it that made me uncomfortable when people would generalize like, you know, well, women are just more nurturing. And I'd be like, boy, not the women that I know. Uh Right. There was something the men in my family were warm and nurturing. And maybe that's cultural. I don't know. Maybe it's just my family. But there was something about it that that rubbed me wrong. So you're this separatist lesbian. You drank the Kool-Aid, but never really were going to hand it out yourself. But then you came to this idea that maybe transitioning to being a man would be something that was going to benefit you. Can you talk about how you make that decision to medically transition? Because you have fully medically transitioned. So can you talk about how long it took to get there and what your process was? Sure. So identifying as trans started for me when I was in college. So when I was like 30 years old. The medical transition started when I was 39. So there was that nine-year period where I was going with a sort of broad sense of being trans. I didn't say transgender. I didn't say transsexual. I just said trans. So the medical part started with the hormones, with testosterone, when I was 39 years old. Part of the reason that there's that nine-year delay is because some of the lessons that I learned through this separatist community was that men were violent 
and the reason men were violent was because of testosterone. So the last thing you could imagine doing was starting to take testosterone and put that in you because you might turn violent was the thinking. Absolutely. So when I just turned 39, I heard that there was going to be a workshop and that a doctor was going to be leading the workshop. And this doctor had worked with transgender patients for maybe a decade and a half at the time. And it was basically like a testosterone 101. Mm -hmm. And it was held at a local library. It was organized by the Transgender Law Center. And they have a health project. At the time, it was headed up by um, uh, Willie Wilkinson. He's a public health consultant up in the Bay Area. And so he organized it. And so I attended that workshop. And this doctor was phenomenal. What she did is she said, what are your questions? And it was a packed room, by the way. Mm -hmm. There was people standing in the back and along the sides and sitting in the middle of the aisle. So she wrote down every question that was asked before she began answering them. So she filled up a whiteboard with questions and then systematically went through those questions and answered them. So I, one, learned that I wasn't the only person who thought that testosterone would make me violent and or aggressive. There were a lot of people who thought that. And she dispelled all the myths people had, and specifically around testosterone and violence and aggression. She said, when your hormones are in balance, there's no aggression or violence. And she likened it to the premenstrual. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah, your hormonal imbalance. Yes. Where, you know, you could commit a violent crime and use that as your reason. Yeah. Because right. when your hormones are out of whack, everything's out of whack. And so if your hormones are imbalanced and when you transition, you do it under medical supervision and they're doing blood tests every so often. And if it's in balance, then you're okay. Sure, too much testosterone can make someone aggressive. Too little testosterone can make someone lethargic. It's a hormone that exists in males and females, so it's an activating hormone. I remember I went home and I said to my wife, I'm going to start testosterone. And she was like, wait, what, what? Because I had been talking about I wasn't going to medically transition for the last three years since we met. And uh, all of a sudden now I was like, I'm going to start it. Because that fear was put aside. Yes, now, there's a lot of layers of your life at this point. So you're this separatist lesbian. You've got a wife or in a relationship for three years. I don't know if you're married at that time. No, we weren't. And at the time, I also wasn't identifying as a separatist any longer. I had walked away from that. I had moved from Colorado to Florida and back to California. And in the move from Colorado to Florida, I disconnected from that community. Gave yourself so that a was fresh in 2000. Uh -huh. So it was about, at that point, maybe five years of being disconnected from that community. Okay, and then you meet Margaret, and you guys get together, and it's three years in, and you're living as a lesbian couple, although she was not, and you're shaking your head no, so tell me how you live, because I'm making assumptions. So tell me how you identified what was going on. Sure. And what it was like to get through that, because you are still now married 14 years almost, or together almost 14 years of September. So tell us a little bit about that. So from the outside viewer, yes, we would have been perceived of as a lesbian couple. I was identifying as trans. Margaret was bisexual. So neither of us were identifying as lesbians, but we both were, for all intents and purposes, female mm -hmm. and viewed in that way. But we didn't view ourselves that way. It was like that for three years. So then you decide to medically transition. And, and that's something that in my research on you and doing this episode, I've learned a lot that relationships don't usually survive the transition. And you two have. Now, how long did the medical transition take from start to finish? And I don't mean going into details, but I mean, like, how long were you in the process of transitioning fully to a man? I would say I don't know that it's usual that relationships don't last. It is common but I think there are more relationships that do survive. We just don't hear about them. Mm. The idea about transitioning and how long it takes. So for the rest of my life, I will need to take testosterone if I want to maintain the changes. There are some changes that would reverse. Some things would stay and maybe slightly just down. You know, like my voice might go up slightly if I stopped hormones. But if I want to keep it the way it is or have it continue to go down, because although I'm almost 50 years old, I've only been on testosterone 11 years. So my voice is still deepening, like the difference between a 15-year-old boy and a 35-year-old man. 
the voice continues to deepen. That's right. My facial hair continues to thicken. Mm. My scalp hair continues to fall out. Yes. <laughs> Yay for that. <laughs> so there are those aspects of the transition that are basically permanent. But the other parts of medical transition that not everybody takes are surgical yes. options. So I did have what's called chest reconstruction surgery, or in the common parlance, people say top surgery mm -hmm. in our community, FTM, female to male trans community. I had that surgery in 2006. So that's basically like a double mastectomy, but they reconstruct the chest to make it look more like a male contoured chest mm -hmm. versus if I was having a double mastectomy because I had breast cancer or for prophylactic reasons for breast cancer. So th that might leave somebody with a more concave chest or they might remove the nipple and areola. That's not what happened with me and with most of us. It's a reconstruction of the chest wall and a replacing of the nipple and sometimes a resizing of the nipple and the areola. So for all yeah, intents and purposes, if I took my shirt off, I, I look like I have a standard yeah. male yeah. chest. And then I had a hysterectomy in 2008. So I had, you know, all the, all the internal reproductive mm -hmm. organs removed. And then I went even further also in 2008 with what would be called genital reconstruction surgery or bottom surgery. So I, I went through the, quote, whole thing, <laughs> which is not something that's common. It's a very small percentage of trans men who actually go through the bottom surgery. It's more common for trans women to go through the bottom surgery. There's a significant difference in the cost between our surgeries and their surgeries. Ours are well over $100,000 wow. um, in most cases, and theirs can be less than $50,000. Uh, some cases more like twenty. So there's some big differences. They're all still cost prohibitive, but ours are very, very expensive. My insurance covered mine. So. And that's amazing that it did. Well, in California, PPO and HMO plans are no longer allowed to exclude surgeries for medical necessity for trans people. Okay, and they, they call it medical necessity. Yeah, it's medically necessary. Excellent. Yes, we get a diagnosis of gender dysphoria, and the treatment is hormone replacement therapy and sex-affirming or gender-congruent surgeries. So it's nice to hear that that can be done. Because when you know that that's the direction that your life should be going, to have to think, well, I can't do this or become this because of this prohibitive surgery doesn't lead you to having a positive outlook on the future, I would assume, for, for many. Definitely not. And, you know, and, and people have said to me over the years, like, if you never really thought that you were born in the wrong body and you weren't somehow compelled to transition and if you didn't, the only option would be like suicide. Why would you go to such lengths to change your body? And it took me a while to figure out why. And it comes down to one very simple thing for me, which is when I do something, I'm all in, right? When I was part of the lesbian community, I was all in. I was like a radical lesbian Avenger separatist dyke. No, no in between there. <laughs> no softball playing, dog owning, sporty lesbian. I mean, I went all in. And with the trans thing, it's basically the same thing. Well, you, you know? did it with your education too. You jumped two feet into everything. Everything. Yeah. I mean, when I was in graduate school, I focused every paper I ever wrote on something that had to do with trans people or trans experience or trans community. I did the same thing in seminary. I wrote about trans stuff and theological perspectives and contexts. When I was in the MSW program, the same thing. And the work that I do, although I don't work directly with an entirely transgender population, there are trans people that I encounter. Prior to my job now, I was working at the Veterans Health Administration, and I had opportunities to work with many transgender veterans. So it wasn't the sole duty that I had, but it's something that I was able to do and I, and I enjoyed doing. And in talking about jumping all in, you know, I have a question as a therapist. You were in your professional career while you were going through your transition. And I wonder, like, we're taught so much to be the blank slate. I don't really subscribe to that as a therapist, but we're taught that. We're, we're taught don't share about yourself, don't let your clients know about your personal lives, things like that. And 
here you are working and at some point there had to have been clients that were there through some part of your transition as you started to morph into a new version of yourself and I wonder how you handled that if you had to disclose that in in ways to clients or to your employers or how that went because I think when people think you know like we talk a lot about the stories of people who transition on like what the personal journey was like what we've been doing so far but then there's the professional stuff and a lot of people are out there with professional careers and like yourself and I wonder what that experience is like or what yours was like. So I started testosterone in 2005. In 2005 and 2006 I was working part-time at an LGBT organization or some other you know social service agencies that were LGBT focused so it was not an issue. Once I was presenting and being seen as male, I moved into working in another job. It wasn't like I said, oh, it's time for me to move now. It's just sort of happened in that way. And I went off and working for a government contractor and got hired on just as male. I had changed my name legally to Xander. You know, I had changed my birth certificate, all my identity documents. So I just walked right into a job as Xander the guy and did not disclose to my colleagues or to the clients that I was working with. And for the most part, I do not disclose to clients. It's not really beneficial to the kind of work that I do. Mm -hmm. But there are times when, when I was working at the VA, that I would be interacting with a trans veteran from some other part of the country who was needing resources. So I was doing social work advocacy, but they weren't my direct client. It was more that I was doing it, one, because I had the inside scoop. I had the ability to connect them with somebody, but also I serve as a board member for the Transgender American Veterans Association. And so I would do the work mostly through that. So they, it was like one trans person to another. But the people that I worked with in the medical clinics or behavioral health clinics, I did not disclose to them. Okay. And not to my colleagues at all. But I did the work. But they were mostly just confused why I was doing it. Like I would do in-service trainings on transgender veteran health care and our directive that existed when I was at the VA. I would do trans 101s in the community and my supervisor would wonder why I was doing them and probably just thought I was an ally. I never spoke about it. Right. And that's something that speaks to the invisible nature of the trans man. They just didn't have any knowledge that you were speaking as a first person reference point. And I had that experience when I met you, that I walked away having no idea that you were a trans man. Can you talk about, like you pointed out to me, that the population that you belong to at this point is very invisible and why that might be? Well, I mean, it's kind of a double-edged sword, right? I choose, right, I've decided to be very discriminant with who I'm disclosed to, but I also am very active in the community. People can just Google my name and find all kinds of things, right, or just go to my website. Like, I'm not hiding it. I just don't announce it in the workplace. I I think there are lots of things that people don't announce at work. This does, you know, it's just one of those things. Like, I don't consider that I have a secret. I'm just private and I don't mix work and community. So there are a lot of us that don't mix work and community. So that adds to the invisibility. What also adds to the invisibility is that for the most part, the more visible members of the trans community are trans women. So you have Janet Mock and Laverne Cox and Caitlyn Jenner, and, and I could just go on and on. There's trans, a trans woman who's a, you know, a boxer, another one who's a CrossFit star. And it's like, well, there's also a trans guy who's headed to the Olympics as a runner, right? Oh. But people don't know about <laughs> oh, that. So I think it's two-pronged. One, the testosterone is a very, very powerful hormone that changes the way we look and sound It can be a few months to a couple of years. It depends on the person. Everybody's different with how long it takes. But once it does take and you look and sound like a man, that's it. I would have to disclose every interaction that I have for people to know that I was trans. And I think people assume that they can always tell when someone's trans, especially a trans woman. But that's not true. I think they have a similar issue that when they're early in transition, Their hormones haven't taken as much effect as they will. They haven't necessarily learned how to present themselves in the way that they're the most comfortable. So people are reading these things. They're reading when we're looking and sounding in an awkward or uncomfortable or new to us stage. 
people were like teenagers. You know, teenagers are awkward, and mm-hmm. everybody kind of knows when the teenagers are around because <laughs> they're awkward, and it's pretty obvious. So I, that's kind of how I felt. I felt like a teenager in my, you know, 40s. It was yes. pretty uncomfortable. But it's this invisibility is comes from, you know, there's pros and cons to that. And it comes from our own continuing to be invisible, but also the invisibility that's created because we're left out of the conversation. We're not as predominant in the media. We're not as present um, when there's some sort of big event that's happening. We're not as visible in that way. We're not integrated in in the same way. Thank you for that. I had made the assumption that I had not known any trans men along the way and meeting you made me realize and kind of question maybe I have along the way. And I think that's really key for people to keep in mind that we really, unless somebody discloses some very private matters, we really can't make assumptions about anybody. Definitely not. And our stories are so varied. One of the reasons that I did some of the projects that I've done over the last few years with like publishing books, editing some anthologies, it was because I wanted the different voices to be heard. So I had people write down their stories. And when you read one of these books, like Letters for My Brothers or the Manning Up book, you'll see that each story is completely different. They're very unique to the place and time that these people were born And, you know, like where in the world and what they were exposed to and the kind of education they have and their ethnicity and their race and their religion, it all impacts the kind of life they're having as the trans man or as a gender nonconforming trans person. Those things impact that. And so it's, uh, it's easy for people to think that we all have a similar story and we all go through the same process. And it's like we don't. We really don't. We're a microcosm of society. Just that's how I think of it. The non-trans world is so very diverse. Well, so is the trans world. We have people who are politically liberal, moderate, conservative, radical, right-wing nut jobs. Right, just like any other population of people. Gun-toting trannies and, you know, people who are devoutly religious, you know, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, you know, pagan, and people who are atheist, and we have vegans and carnivores, right? We have, you know, people... It's the same. Exactly. It's exactly the same. It's just that we're this microcosm. So what that means is when we're with each other, we might only have that one thing in common with each other, which makes it a little difficult then to maybe form lasting relationships and friendships with people in our community, whereas in general, people can form friendships. You know, in lesbian community, I didn't have any problem forming friendships because there were so many and there were so many similarities. There was a lot of overlap. There's not as much overlap. Right. Because really, there's this one unique thing that ties you together. But that doesn't mean you have any other things in common. No common interest, maybe with with many other people in your own community there. Absolutely. All along the transition, you have been with Margaret. Now, as a relationship therapist, I am fascinated when I see relationships that withstand intense change. And I assume that this was an intense change, even if it was in a way that made the made you both more congruent for who who you are. Um, it still is a change. It was intense. There was a lot of things that went on. So I want to know what can you share about what you've learned about relationships to help those of us that dealing with life's ups and downs in relationships and how do you sustain a relationship through such change? Well, from the very first date Margaret and I ever had, we made a choice right then and there, one, to continue dating and to be very intentional about our dates. And we've continued that tradition. So what I mean by that is that we went on a first date and then a second date and then a third date. Every week, a new date, a unique date. So we've now been on what, like 800 unique (laughs) dates. So right from the get-go, we put this intentionality into it. It's part of our personalities. It could be that we met and fell in love in a seminary, which is a very contemplative space, a very completely pulled out from standard world people and issues and problems. It was it was like being in a little monastery for a couple of years, living on campus, eating on campus, going to school. It was very, very nice in the hills of Berkeley. Mm. 
So that intentionality started right from the very beginning. And I had mentioned previously that I have this adaptability. Well, Margaret also has really good adaptability. And so I think we're very complementary in that sense. So I think we just have some things that we brought to the relationship that have seen us through. The intentionality, the adaptability. One of the things that we learned about each other pretty early on is that we'd both been active prior to meeting in nonviolence communities. So Margaret had been involved in nonviolence work in prisons, and I had been involved in nonviolence work in not through nonviolent communication and through pacifism. So one of the things we started doing was going to Quaker meeting. Quakers are pacifists by nature, and it's a very contemplative Christian sect or denomination. So it's a very mindful would be a way to describe it for people who are, you know, you're, you're sitting in silence for the most part of like six, 60-minute period of time in a Quaker meeting. It's very, very nice. And so this brought us together, that we were in this setting. We were both passionate about nonviolence and being intentional. So we've, yes. that's been with us since day one, and it's taken us through this. So three years in, I'm going through my transition and, and surgeries. I mean, that's a lot to maneuver and navigate, especially as a partner. There's a lot of fear about surgery, anybody who's had surgery, oh, sure. right? Anesthesia and healing and how am I going to be able to be partnered to somebody? How am I going to not be a partner of somebody, but how to be a caretaker, right? You have to yes. take care of somebody when they're, right. they're home from surgery. from surgery. That's right, from recovery. So I'd say the first large chunk of our relationship was more me being on the side of being involved in medical care and needing to be in recovery over the period of time and adjustment, social adjustment, physical adjustment, emotional adjustment. Testosterone doesn't just give me a beard. It also changed the way I filter things through my brain. I mean, it really, the biochemistry is forever changed because of that. Right. So that's going to change things in our relationship. Certainly. So Margaret would have to be adaptable because you, as you said, you changed how you filtered how you think. And that's something that I, I think is uh, interesting to for for people to think about that it's not just the physical change there's there's that emotional change that goes on and it's different for everybody and it doesn't come right away I, I can't say that two injections in all of a sudden I was this new whole different person no it took a little while but but it, it's pretty clear to me 11 years out that it could also just be chronological maturation right I'm 50 years old almost maybe I would be here already without the testosterone because of <laughs> getting older. Right, just I don't, how you view the yeah, world now. I can't separate those things out. But I do know, looking back, about five years in, there was a sort of a, a, a knowing or an understanding that I had about how, how I was different. The world was different to me and how I was different in the world. But I'd say in the last couple of years, now Margaret and I have had some shifts in that she's had some issues that have come up that needed me. I needed to step up and become more of a caretaker. And, you know, so I had to adjust to that. But isn't that just what a marriage is or yes. a relationship is? It's a roller coaster ride. Really, there's going to be those ups and those downs and times when you feel like you're going to vomit, you're so nervous, or times you're just so angry. I mean, I remember it was about two years into our relationship. I don't know why, but I was just mad about something, you know, that Margaret had said. And I said to her, I just don't like you right now. And she looked at me and she goes, I know. That's the person I'm married to, right? It's like, <laughs> right. I can't even imagine that in any previous relationship that would have gone so well. That you say that and they're not, they don't say back, well, I don't like you now either. Or, or yeah. well, maybe. Hike. <laughs> but it's like, I like yeah, that. It's, right. it's a fully transparent, authentic, yes. open communication relationship. I had thought that before in previous relationships. I had never said it. Who would say that? Well, I said it. I think it goes along with the intentionality. Like even in any communication, it sounds like that intentionality with her. Whether it's your dates or when you're mad, saying how you feel. I think that's a great lesson. Quite frankly, I love the dating lesson of the intentional dates. I think that's a wonderful thing for, for people to think about and for couples to embrace. Absolutely. Um, yeah. We love it so much. We, we got one of those new um, vanity plates, uh -huh. the legacy ones. You know, you can California, yes. you can get those black and gold license plates. So I ordered one the other day that says unique dates on it. Really? Yeah. So oh, it's going to be fun. It's going to be on our car. <laughs> 
Yep. That's great. So it really is. It, it's it's part of your relationship. It Absolutely. Is, it is at the heart of your relationship is this intentionality in the dates. Yeah, people have been saying to us over the years, oh, you should write a book, you should do a website, you should do something. It's like, I don't have the time for all that stuff. But I did start calling them totally awesome dates, and I did get a website at one point, and I even designed a logo. But you know what? I, I'm i too busy doing other things, but that doesn't get in the way of us actually doing our dates. That's the intentionality, yes. right? You yes. kept that going. I'm not an intentional webmaster. No. I'm just an intentional <laughs> husband. Well, there you go. And I'm sure Margaret is very happy about that. I think so, so far. <laughs> I want to just ask you, how has your view of yourself changed by living as a man? Oh, that's a big question. Yeah, I know. It's My view of myself, it's some of the things that in the first maybe four or five years of transition, they were really difficult for me to come to terms with. And it was the change in perception that people had with regard to me. So coming from a more sort of out and proud queer or out and proud dyke and being, you know, loud and demanding and an activist, that had been fostered, encouraged, cultivated. That was something that was seen as good leadership qualities yes. or something to be recognized as doing good, right? To speak about injustice, to bring attention to those who are on the margins. So I had well-honed skills being an activist. Well, I noticed that once I started to be perceived regularly, so I was already starting to assert that I was something kind of akin to male. In the beginning, I wasn't, I didn't like all of a sudden take testosterone and say, I'm a man now. I got to the point where I could take testosterone and not believe I was going to become a violent man, but I still wasn't fully on board with being a man, if that makes sense. I went through an adjustment period identity-wise as well, using some other terms like FTM, which is short for female to male, trans, or calling myself a trans male, mm -hmm. or a guy. It, it took me, I was probably like five or six years on T before I said I started identifying as a man, because at that point it was just sort of like, what else am I going to do? I mean, the whole world sees me that way. I better just get on board with it. There was a shift that I noticed where people stopped looking at me as doing the right thing and all of a sudden doing the wrong thing. So all of a sudden I went from being a in-your-face, proud-out dyke to a loud, obnoxious asshole. So I went from being perceived predominantly as a Latina to a white man. So now I've got this like I'm a white man with a whole lot of privilege who's sexist and a racist. I had never been called a racist in my life yeah. until I all of a sudden was being perceived of as a white man, which is something that I it never even dawned on me. There were lots of things that I never I didn't consider. There's so much attention on all the physical changes with hormones. The social changes aren't something that I paid any attention to, and quite honestly, nobody warned me about either. And that was that, hey, you're going to be a straight man now. What? Oh, yeah, I'm in relationship yes. with a woman. So I went from being perceived of as lesbian to a straight man. Well, I didn't particularly care for straight men prior to my transition, and now I'm being perceived as one. And so I got to experience the kind of attitudes and treatment that I had perpetrated on other people. I was a white straight man. People didn't know my physical, my disability background. Mm -hmm. So now I was an able-bodied white so straight man with graduate degrees, right? So it was like all of a sudden I went from being perceived as a person who could never have any privilege at all. I was a Latina with physical disabilities and intellectual, um, who was a dyke. I was just, you know. You couldn't have ostracized yourself more in society. And then you flip over and here you are. The whole idea that you're no longer Latino. Like That's you, right. You're not seen as a Latino man. That's right. It's so drastic. And so I didn't adjust to that new perception very well. I still don't like it. What I've noticed is that people don't seem to be as invested in me. People used to be mm. invested in me. I think in general, people invest in women. They would inquire, how are you? How's your life? What's going on? It's fairly rare that people inquire into my life in more than just a sort of phatic way. Hey, man, what's up? I don't have the same ability to relate casually to women who are strangers like I used to be able to. 
So I went from being perceived as somebody who was part of community, part of my sisterhood, so to speak, to now a potential perpetrator of violence. Mm. So that's a very, very difficult shift to make, and it's not one that I'm comfortable with. I, it's still very uncomfortable for me. And it's even more uncomfortable when those assumptions are coming from my own community, from within trans community or queer community. And I've talked with several of my trans guy friends who have had similar experiences. You know, and we're talking like Latino and African-American and various Asian ethnicities. And we were all right on lesbians of color. And now we're just these guys who are thugs or potential thugs or perpetrators of some sort of sexual assault who can't be left near your children anymore. I mean, that's a stark contrast um, and not one that I've been able to adjust to. I, I don't think I should have to, but I don't know any other way. I have to somehow put myself at ease because that's another thing. That's a social construct that I cannot single-handedly dismantle. I can't do it. And there aren't enough of us. And even if there were, I don't know if they'd listen to us anyway because we're men now. Right. And unless you were to go back and do that disclosure, as we talked before, that that's, you know, the only reason why now you're jumped into the same category as any other white man with lots of graduate degrees and privilege, you'd have to disclose your private life. And that doesn't mean that would take it away. That just would add to it. And I think it's a sad commentary that you're talking about here, about what goes on in society that, and, and, and I'm a little blind to it myself because I'm a white woman with, with degrees and a business and I haven't experienced prejudice. I have a little, I grew up with disabilities in my family. My dad was paraplegic. I saw things, saw people stereotype him and put him in categories, but not in the way that you're talking about. And to kind of like you have this insider view of, oh, this is just the average white man, straight man experience yeah. is, is pretty frightening. I would have to qualify everything yes, constantly saying, like, unless you were constantly doing that that's right i couldn't just say i'm a trans might i have to say actually i was bullied as a young latino or latina you know and these things happened to me because of my physical disability i'd have to constantly which to me i never had to do that before but I think that also speaks to another issue, which is that I never found problematic, but maybe I should have, which is why was I okay letting people believe that I was a victim all the time, that I was always at a disadvantage? I honestly didn't feel at a disadvantage. I think that was part of the dyke mentality that I had, which is that I was strong and powerful. So I didn't feel like I was having to deal with sexism. I mean, yes, in the big scheme of things, but F them. I was going to do whatever I wanted. But when it was to my advantage to sort of play that card, I did it. That's kind of what I'd have to do now. I'd have to be like, oh, wait, let me pull out the deck and go like, here's a disabled card. Here's the first generation Mexican-American. Here's the high school dropout. Here's I'd have to play all those cards, and but I'd have to do them in a way that is uncomfortable for me. And, and what would be the purpose? To shame the person? To guilt the person? To get some advantage? that I don't necessarily even need. It's more in a sort of a larger scheme of social say, right, structure. It's not going to change the entire social structure yeah. by, by you proving or disproving something one way or the other. Well, and where this comes closer to home for me is as a clinician, prior to my job now, and even in my job now, I predominantly work with males. So like the bulk of my clientele are men. And so I know from that perspective how much men are suffering and grieving and are on the receiving end of family violence. But there's not a lot of attention to that in the media. And even if I've had the experience of if I begin to talk about it, it gets shut down as of being a misogynist because I'm not preferencing the suffering of women over the suffering of men. And I'm like, I don't think we should preference either. I think we should talk about violence, structural violence and suffering, and we should be trauma-informed in the way we deliver services. And people are suffering trauma. I don't think we should privilege trauma survivors. I think we should look at men and women and boys and girls and talk about trauma and how it's impacting people.
And then maybe what we'll be able to do is instead of brandishing one group of people, victims, and other group perpetrators, we can see that those who are quote-unquote perpetrating are actually suffering from depression and PTSD and addiction, and they were traumatized in their younger life, and that's why they're violent. It's not an excuse mm-hmm. for violence, but it might be a good reason to investigate services yes, and, and providing treatments. Yes. Well... Xander, those are definitely words to think about and concepts to think about. So Xander Keg, thank you so much for being with me on the Coaching Through Chaos podcast. And for the audience, you know, Xander mentioned a couple of books. And of course, there is a Xanderology documentary that is coming out on his life. There is an episode available already on Amazon. And in today's blog post that goes along with the episode, I will include links to everything that is currently available that Xander's involved in, including his website. So thank you again, Xander, for being with me on the show. Absolutely, Colleen. It's been a blast. Thank you so much for having me. such a great time talking and learning from Xander. We actually talked for about three hours. I think we could have gone on for a few more. I hope you took away some new insights into at least his trans story and maybe gained some new empathy for persons going through transitions. There are links to the books and articles Xander has been a part of, as well as links to the episodes of Xanderology that are already released on Amazon in the blog post that accompanies this episode. And if you're a movie fan, please make sure to check out Shrink to Shrink. It's the other podcast I do where myself and another therapist psychobabble about movies that you love. It's like Siskel and Ebert with a psychological twist. So to follow me between episodes and to keep up with all the latest information from myself and the Coaching Through Chaos practice, just sign up for my mailing list at coachingthroughchaos.com. And if you want to interact with me, you can shout out to me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Colleen Mullen or on Facebook at Coaching Through Chaos. Okay, that's it for me today. Until we meet again, if you've got chaos in your life, I hope you're finding your way through it. Take care.